I'd say Oxford has pretty much a stranglehold on the top of political life. And Oxford and Cambridge together more broadly over the whole establishment. So whether Truss or Sunak comes prime minister, they will be the 12th Oxford graduate of the 16 prime ministers since 1940. Uh, three of the others didn't go to university, including Churchill. And uh, Gordon Brown is the only prime minister since 1940 to have been to another university. He went to Edinburgh because the Scottish League follows a slightly different trajectory. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to Connected Leadership Gold. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me, and a happy new year. I hope you've had a great Christmas so far, and that you're enjoying a few more days of rest before getting back to all the exciting things that 2024 have to offer to you. One thing that 2024 will most likely offer to us in the UK is a new prime minister. Maybe the existing prime minister will get back in. We shall see, but uh, his chances don't look too great at the moment. Last year in September, or actually I should say now the year before in September, in uh, September the 5th, 2022, I talked to the author Simon Cooper uh, about how to become British Prime Minister. So as we enter an election year, I thought, let's revisit that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. In the UK today, uh, we have the results of an election being announced, uh, and we will have a new Prime Minister. Now, whoever it is, they will have something in common, and they'll share that commonality with quite a number of previous Prime Ministers. And that is an education uh, at Oxford University, and to a degree, uh, participation in the Oxford Union. My guest today is someone who can give us a real insight on whether or not we have an establishment clique at the top of British life, not just in politics, but elsewhere as well. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that through that discussion, we can also take some lessons about cliques and establishments in other areas of life and if you're not from the same background how you break into that and so forth so it is unapologetically political today in the sense that the timing is perfect that the topic is is spot on but equally as always with the connected leadership podcast i think there'll be a lot of takeaways whatever your interest in politics and whatever you're doing uh, for your career so my guest is simon cooper uh, Simon is a Financial Times columnist and is the author of several critically acclaimed books, uh, and most recently the one that prompted this conversation, uh, a book that came out earlier this year, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. Simon is an alumnus of Oxford University himself, and he, he covered a new generation of future politicians from, as he puts it, his messy desk at the student newspaper. Uh, so among the future backroom and front row politicians he wrote about were Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dan Hannan, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings, David Cameron and a certain Boris Johnson. And in his book, Simon argues that an entire group of mainly boys were born and groomed with one thing in mind, and that's to rule the UK. And they've been successful. While we may be witnessing a former comprehensive schoolgirl in the process of becoming the next British Prime Minister, it's, it's either Liz Truss or former Westminster public schoolboy Rishi Sunak, um, as, as Bloomberg pointed out in an opinion piece last month, uh, Britain still can't look beyond Oxford for its next leader. 
and not even just Oxford. It seems as though it's one course, philosophy, politics and economics that dominates the field. Both Sunak and Trust took PPE, as did former Prime Minister David Cameron a few years ahead of them. So with this in mind, I wanted to understand the power of the establishment in modern society, whether in the UK or elsewhere, and how to break down what seemed to be to some insurmountable barriers. Uh, And to help me with that, as I mentioned, is Simon Cooper. So Simon, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much, Andy. Let's get straight into the topic. Uh, You know, from your seat at the top table, so to speak, um, what's your view of the impact of leading public schools and universities, and particularly the Oxford Union, on British public life? I'd say Oxford has pretty much a stranglehold on the top of political life. And Oxford and Cambridge together more broadly over the whole establishment. So whether Truss or Sunak becomes prime minister, they will be the 12th Oxford graduate of the 16 prime ministers since 1940. Uh, Three of the others didn't go to university, including Churchill. And uh, Gordon Brown is the only prime minister since 1940 to have been to another university. He went to Edinburgh because the Scottish League follows a slightly different trajectory. So, you know, the public schools are very important. Uh, I think we've had five Eton and Oxford prime ministers since the 50s, including Cameron and Johnson. But Oxford itself is a very significant independent variable, even detached from the public schools. So you've had people like uh, Thatcher, Heath, Harold Wilson, potentially Liz Truss, who came through the state school system into Oxford and then on to Downing Street. Now, why Oxford? I mean, you mentioned the PPE degree. I'd push back a bit as to its dominance. I mean, you do have some prime ministers like Heath and Cameron, possibly Truss, who um, did PPE, and often these are people who uh, like the idea of modernizing Britain and they're looking for the tools to run a sort of modern country, although the PPE degree is unusually superficial, even by the standards of the of Oxford degrees. Look, the whole Oxford degree is typically 72 weeks. That's the time you're at Oxford. Uh, that's less than a year and a half. And then PPE, politics, philosophy, economics, you divide that over three completely different subjects. So it is quite superficial. So you got the PPE prime ministers, but then you also have people like Boris Johnson, Margaret Thatcher, who do something completely different at Oxford. And the leading Brexiteers, as as I show in the book, uh, almost none of them did PPE. Almost everyone who did PPE in the Commons voted for Remain, uh, be the main party. Why? What's the other thing at Oxford that was very significant for someone like Boris Johnson or Ted Heath or Harold Macmillan, even Theresa May? was the Oxford Union Debating Society, which is where you, you, you learn the kind of rhetoric that is very prized in the commons. The Oxford Union is a kind of nursery of the commons. It's an imitation of the commons, sort of children's parliament. And you have the same uh, facing of the benches and the same voting eyes and nose, and people shouting point of order. So when people from the Oxford Union get into the commons, they find it very familiar. The Oxford Union also offers... Uh, great training in elections because they elect a new president every single term, three times a year. And then the rhetoric you learn is this kind of jesting, um, jousting, um, ignoring the other person's arguments if that's convenient, being funny, being entertaining. And Boris Johnson, you know, he really symbolizes all the Oxford Union qualities to the point of parody. 
uh, treating politics as a game, being very good at winning elections, not really being interested in doing anything else with it. And then his debating style, which is really a kind of comic entertainment performance. So why Oxford, the Oxford Union and the PBE degree? I want to hone in on that, that um, training people get in the Oxford Union in the debating and rhetoric skills. You quote Churchill uh, visiting the Oxford Union and telling the former Conservative Minister, Quentin Hogg, if you can speak in this country, you can do anything. Uh, you also made what I thought was a really interesting case, um, uh, and that was that the Oxford Union gave future Conservative politicians an edge over future Labour politicians because the Labour students didn't tend to get involved um, in the union, but as you put it, they got involved in tortured debates about post-Marxism. Um, so I think I've got a follow-up question to that, but I think first of all, can you perhaps talk to that distinction and how you you you, you talked about how Boris Johnson really took on that Oxford Union debating style? What is it that puts that ahead of the 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 approaches that a Labour society, a Labour club, um, would the training that would have given Labour students in terms of their future? Because you had senior lady, Labour politicians went to Oxford as well. Yeah, well, with Labour and the Oxford Union, there's a big shift because the senior Labour figures in the late 70s, early 80s are very largely men who were Oxford Union officers. Uh, Michael Foote, Roy Jenkins, who said that his great sadness in June 1940 wasn't about the fall of France, but about losing the Oxford Union presidency election. Um, Dennis Healy, Crossman. So there was a whole bunch of them who had been union figures. But then in the 70s, Labour starts to boycott the Oxford Union, saying correctly that it's a kind of entitled stage for toffs to show off and the membership fee is too high. And so in the era that I'm writing about in Chums, the Oxford Union is dominated by Tories who are going to go on to positions of power in the Tory party, like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg. You know, as you say, many senior Labour figures were at Oxford, but they weren't at the union. And you see that with Keir Starmer. So Starmer does his undergraduate degree at Leeds, then arrives in Oxford in 1985 to do a, a postgraduate law course for two years. So Starmer leaves actually in 1987, summer 87, exactly the same summer that Boris Johnson leaves. I'm sure he knew Boris Johnson, who was a kind of big man on campus. And Starmer is in the Oxford Labour Club with people like uh, the Miliband brothers will be there, Stephen Twig, Ed Balls, uh, Yvette Cooper, I think. They all go through the Oxford Labour Club. What they don't get is this debate training, this kind of being funny in public and um, cutting down the opponent who has stronger arguments than you. And so you see that with the Johnson-Starmer confrontations of the last couple of years. Starmer is quite good at you know building a forensic argument about why a government policy is wrong or why Boris Johnson has done something wrong. And Johnson is good at just ignoring that and making a joke. So at one point, he calls Starmer Sir Beer Cormer, reference to uh, Starmer having had a curry which supposedly broke COVID rules. Police later ruled it didn't break COVID rules. And so that is a very effective trick, which would have been completely Oxford Union at undermining an opponent by ignoring what they say. Um, right at the end, after Johnson had agreed to leave as PM, he and Nadine Dorries are shouting at Starmer, you're boring, um, which for Johnson, for an Oxford Union former president like Johnson, is the cardinal sin. 
it's much worse to be boring than to, let's say, uh, screw up COVID policy, uh, causing thousands of unnecessary deaths. So, and he's right, Starmer is boring. He's a boring debate performer. And I think that that is something that has advantaged conservatives over recent times. And most of all, uh, Johnson, who was the most effective politician at getting elected of his generation, partly because of that Oxford Union training. So if we take um, what you're saying about debating style and the barracking, which is something I experienced as well in my own university debating society, um, the and we also take what you said earlier about how short the Oxford courses are and, and perhaps the lack of depth in them. Have we got to a, a point where your ability to speak, your ability to create a soundbite, your ability to um, win that debating environment that Parliament uh, gives has the edge over grasp of policy? Is that impacting us at, at the top of public life? I think Oxford exacerbates a very, that very damaging tendency in British politics that being able to also teaches you above all to speak well and write well, even when you don't know much about what you're talking about. I mean, that's the consequence of 18-year-old undergraduates writing essays uh, of a few pages when they have many other things going on in their lives and reading them out to a tutor who may be an expert on the subject and then spending an hour dancing around the tutor's criticisms of your uh, the holes in your argument. So what do you learn from that process above all to write elegantly? and to speak well about a subject about which you're underinformed, which I found very useful in my career as a newspaper columnist. I think barristers do well out of it, and British politicians, to name just a few post-Oxford professions. And, you know, there are serious people who read the dossier, but I think that the ability to speak well and present, as Churchill said, is primordial in British politics. It's very hard to be to reach the top without it. And if you do reach the top and you don't speak well, Theresa May, for example, despite her Oxford Union training, um, then you're pilloried because you, you, you come off as unimpressive, even if you happen to know the dossier. So, yeah, I think British politics has prioritized the wrong qualities, and that's partly because of what these Oxford-educated prime ministers prioritize themselves. And, and in the book, you, you're very clear that it's not just uh, politicians that have come through um, the Oxford Union in this particular path. And you, you point to a number of people in other senior roles in public life that have come on that path. Do you think it's different in the world of business? Do you think that a grasp of the portfolio is more important? Or do you think those same those same public speaking skills, debating skills, writing skills uh, can help people get to senior positions where a mere grasp of detail won't. I certainly think being able to present well is an advantage in any British profession. And foreigners are often very impressed by how Oxbridge Brits, you know, speak convincingly and write elegantly. And so they give them a pass, even when that Oxbridge Brit might not know what he she is talking about. One very, very senior British economist told me, he said, Yeah, I I'm taken more seriously by the people around the world I talk to because I have learned at university how to speak well in my native language, English, which, of course, is the language of global business. 
So I do think it's an advantage in business as well. But I think one very important difference in British business and British politics is that British business at the higher levels and even at the intermediate levels isn't really British. You know, you have a lot of foreigners in all sorts of jobs, especially in, I would say, especially in London businesses who uh, come from different traditions and, you know, care that you read the report and you have a grasp of figures rather than that you have this um, wonderful speaking ability. And I think it also raises the quality to let in foreigners. I mean, to use the analogy with football, the Premier League is better because there are lots of foreign players playing and that forces the British players to be better as well. And then you go to the Commons and everyone is British. And so a very British homegrown style of uh, debating humour can predominate and you're not bringing in talent from other countries the way British business is. You know, in business, London is often described using the Wimbledon analogy. You know, the venue is in is in England, but the best players come from everywhere else. And so uh, sometimes I think Westminster would benefit from a bit of that. So I, I, I opened up by sort of talking about how leaders in whichever field might be able to learn from our conversation in your book, um, you know, how they can break into establishments elsewhere. But I think one of the things that you're saying is that we hear about the Westminster bubble, that we are talking, well, there, there will hopefully be some takeaways from this, and I think there certainly are. Um, we are talking about a, a very particular space which doesn't get diluted, for want of a better word, by people who don't come from the same background, who don't come from the same pool. So there is that very specific quality uh, of British politics and British public life. Well, the, the caveat I'd add is that there are a couple of moments where they let in outsiders. And one very important, maybe the most important one, is at age 18, when a few or quite a number of people from the middle class, low middle class, and working class Britain are led into Oxford. And those people, because what the British ruling caste, by which I mean the kind of people who go to boarding school, which is about 1% of the population, which is pretty much a hereditary caste. Often your father went, your grandfather went, you go. And what they're good at is letting in a few talented outsiders because what they don't want is those talented outsiders feeling, well, there's no way for me to succeed in Britain, so I'm going to try and bring down the system. That's sort of what happened in France with the French Revolution, where the French aristos were saying, no, hang on, this country belongs to us. There's no way in for you, the rest of you. So the British ruling caste has always said to people like Margaret Thatcher, Ted Heath, Keir Starmer, Liz Truss, uh, you know, you were not born in our caste, but we let in some of you, strengthen our caste. And we let you in aged 18 at Oxford. So this caste is not totally impermeable. It is porous, especially at age 18. And one example of this is Michael Gove, who goes to, who's from a very ordinary family in Aberdeen, who goes to private school on a scholarship, bright lad, goes to Oxford. And there he kind of dresses as a top in a Salvation Army suit, which he's bought, I think, for five pounds, dresses as a young fogey top, looks like he went to Eton. And he inveigles himself not just into Oxford's political caste, which includes a lot of state school people like, say, the Miliband or Keir Starmer. Gove inveigles himself into the, the group of public school boys 
who dominate the Oxford Union, and he in the end is elected Oxford Union president. So, I mean, some of it in that cast is dressing up, but there there are opportunities to get in. But after eighteen, it becomes much more difficult. So you you mentioned Michael Gove, and in the book you talk about Boris Johnson surrounding himself with. I guess where would be acolytes, you know, people who are going to clear the way for him and do the, the 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 grunt work for him, go out and help him win those elections. Uh, and one of those was was Michael Gove. Uh, and I, you know, you hear a lot of reporting which suggests that that's an approach that he took into his premiership as well. Is that something that you've seen um, Boris Johnson carry on into the way he led his his party and his country and he ran his campaigns? Uh, other other senior political leaders, and if that, that is the case, do people like Michael Gove, once they have vagled their way into that elite, are they accepted as one of them? Is there a, is there always a difference because they didn't go to the right public school, or if you've been through the Oxford Union and in Michael Gove's case been elected president, are you accepted as one of the group at some point? So there's two questions there. One is Johnson's using people. I mean, look. He was the most charismatic Etonian of his generation. He was a very funny man. And he was bright. But aged about 15, I think, he realized, look, I don't have to read the books. I don't have to uh, crunch the numbers. I can do that. But there are other people who can do that better. And that's not my real strength. My strength is being front of stage, being a performer. And so, you know, he becomes captain of school at Eton for his charisma and his wit. And he comes to Oxford and he doesn't do hardly any work at Oxford. But he again does this kind of lifelong campaign, you know, putting his brand out there every day, winning followers, which he's done really, I suppose, for 40 years nonstop. Very hard work on his brand. And there's a British deference, I think, which says that Etonians are born to rule. And that deference is particularly strong among Tories. So here's this man, he's, he's, uh, witty, handsome, charismatic, and so obviously he should be the leader. And so he forms a kind of fan club around him of what he later describes as Stooges, which includes uh, Michael Gove. Uh, Johnson identifies Gove as being very bright and therefore a good Stooge to have around, good for doing the grunt work. And so Johnson really carries that on for the rest of his life. And this prime minister, he doesn't read the dossier. You know, he kind of tries to bluff his way through like he's always done. And his presumption has always been, well, there's always, there'll always be people like Go to read the dossier for me. It doesn't really work anymore when you're prime minister. Now, um, the other part of the question is, can you be accepted? You asked that about someone like Michael Gove. I think Gove wrestled with that. So Gove became very close to the Camerons. Gove's wife was um, god godmother to one of their children. The families would go on holiday together. And then suddenly in 2014, Cameron sacks him from the cabinet. And Gove is horrified. He's also uh, he's worried financially because you know, he loses a big chunk of his salary. I think it's like £30,000 a year. going to make it harder for a man like him who has no inherited wealth to pay off his mortgage. So he's horrified. He feels he thought he and Cameron were friends. But in fact, Cameron, in Gove's words, has treated him like star. Cameron didn't really see him as a friend, but as a kind of student, votary, helper. And that has also always been... Gove's relationship with Johnson. He was never quite a friend, but he was someone useful to have around and he could do a lot of jobs in cabinet that Johnson didn't really care about. And so can you ever completely belong? It's very hard. Um, You can succeed without belonging to that class. You know, we've had several prime ministers 
in post-war Britain who didn't come from that class. And in Thatcher's case, who within her party had to vanquish the kind of uh, ruling caste toffs I'm talking about. But uh, belonging is very difficult. It's very easy for people listening to us to assume some judgment on our part. And I, I think that's probably quite natural. Um, I think the way that I'm posing the questions and, uh, and some of the answers, um, we're bringing out a lot of the negatives of, of this approach. Um, my, my ultimate goal is to give people an understanding of how to work within a society that has this in place and understand what's there. Um, but I think it's also important to emphasize that this isn't necessarily all all black and white and, and it's all negative. A lot of what you've said about Boris Johnson's approach, certainly up to the point of being prime minister where you say it doesn't work. Um, but up until that point, that mirrors a lot of what I teach, you know, playing to your strengths, building a network of people who support you and advocate for you and influence on your behalf. Um, so, so how do you see it? Do you see it as a wholly negative uh, issue? Is it something which you think there are key strengths in that we need to make more of? Or are you looking for wholesale reform? I mean, what you're really saying is that Johnson has been successful, which is unarguably true. And my question would be, should someone like that be successful? Should somebody without a moral compass who doesn't do his homework have risen to the top position in society? I don't think so. I think that's a sign of a society that's not functioning very well. In my broader critique, my broader critique of Oxford in the book, I think there are some things that Oxford does well, and I think knowing how to speak and write well are very important skills, and I think Oxford teaches them very well. I think slogging through the dossier and uh, doing a lot of number crunching and also understanding numbers, which has never been important on the art side at Oxford and the art side historically has been most of the university, I think those are very important qualities too that, that Oxford doesn't emphasize enough. I mean, yes, there are people who do maths and physics at Oxford, but they're a minority. And also they're not, um, they're looked down on historically and they uh, tend not to ascend to positions of political power. So we're run by arts graduates largely who seem more than they are because they've learned how to write and speak well. And partly what I'm doing in the book is to warn the rest of the population, look, these people are not as impressive as they seem, but they have this one special skill that is uh, very effective. And I include myself in that critique because when I look at people like Johnson, I think, well, I have a lot of those qualities too, not as well-developed as he has, so I've been less successful. But I too learned largely at Oxford how to write and speak for a living without much knowledge. I too can bluff my way through. I too at Oxford learned uh, something of a ruling class accent, not an Etonian accent, but still I sound more posh than the majority of British people. And that helps me in power situations in Britain. So I, all the flaws that I'm pointing to are flaws that I myself have. Uh, again, lack of numeracy. Would I, uh, lack of scientific knowledge, would I have been confident? Uh, trying to form a strategy against COVID or on nuclear energy or on climate change. No, I, I don't have anything like kind of training to be able to assess those scientific arguments. And nor did Johnson and the rest of his cabinet. Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. 
Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. Going back to um, the way David Cameron saw Michael Gove as, as staff, uh, you, you quote Toby Young, the journalist in, in Chums, saying that the types of people who succeeded in the union were people who, when confronted with any social environment, perceive only the hierarchical conditions which determine people's status within it, and they've no means of relating to other individuals other than tools or enemies. So that goes very much to we are of the same class, therefore we are alike, effectively. Um, and you talked about how um, David Cameron didn't want to attack fellow establishment figures in the, in the Brexit campaign, and that may well have been part of, of his downfall. Is that, uh, uh, is that a type of thinking that's permeated our politics generally? You point to the Brexit example. Um, and then let's look at the, how an outsider who wants to challenge that current thinking um, can, can make enough of an impact to create real change. So do we still have this really tight establishment there? And how can someone like Michael Gove, who's been very successful to a large degree, really uh, fight their way to being on a level and not being seen as staff? Well, Brian Class, who's a political scientist who looks at why democracies fail, says Look, there's a lot of research showing that the kind of people who become politicians are, can be slightly psychopathic in that they're very interested in power and their own personal status more than, let's say, the well-being of the nation. So if you want to become a politician, that's a bad sign uh, of your moral qualities in terms of looking after other people. And yes, you see that at the Oxford Union, which is full of people who want to become politicians, who treat elections very much as ways to increase their own power. And Oxford Union elections aren't really about anything else because the Oxford Union president, the only thing he she gets to do is run debates. So you're not really trying to help people. As Prime Minister, you're supposed to help people, but if you're the kind of person who doesn't care about that, that's problematic. And I think we, um, we've seen that in the Johnson era. Now, in terms of loyalty, I mean, that sort of conflicts with the psychopath idea. But I think in the British establishment, there's traditionally been a let's not rock the boat quality. And radicals on either extreme were typically mistrusted. So uh, Corbyn was not um, liked or trusted even by most Labour MPs. And um, it's been very hard for people outside the kind of centre-left, centre-right spectrum for most of the time to gain power. And then there's this tribal loyalty of the boarding school caste where it's not just that you knew each other at school, but your parents and grandparents knew each other. You come from this very small group of people which has loyalties going back generations often. I think that's part of Cameron's reluctance to take on people he knew well, like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson in the referendum, which he needed to do. He needed to discredit them for Remain to have won. So tribal loyalty is important. Sometimes the establishment breaks apart. And it happened over Munich in 1938. And there was a big rift between appeasers and people like Churchill wanted to go for war. And they really, really didn't like each other for a year or so. And it happened again over Brexit. And that has taken longer to heal than the Munich rift, but I think is slowly healing. But largely the establishment tries to stick together and sees people in the establishment as good chaps. I mean, Johnson 
sort of breaks that apart because he doesn't believe in any establishment norm. Now, how to change it? If you're coming in, like, I mean, Go's strategy has been to mimic the accent, mimic the speech patterns, and to gain as much an establishment or a ruling caste CV as possible by doing not just Oxford, but the Oxford Union, and then the conservative newspapers, and then the common. But I think we really need to think as a society, how do we make our ruling elite, because every society has a ruling elite, much more diverse, much more open to talent. And Oxford and Cambridge in the last four or five years have quite radically changed. I've been very impressed since publishing the book. I've been back to Oxford two or three times, been to Cambridge. I've been very impressed to see how they are trying to reach out. So now both Oxford and Cambridge have 68% of their new uh, undergraduate admissions last year were state school, which is the highest in the history of both universities. And they're not just reaching out to the leafy state schools in Buckinghamshire and so on. They're going to some of the most deprived state schools in the UK and saying, please visit us on open days. Please um, let us talk to your students who might one day apply to Oxford. We'll bring them to summer schools at Oxford sometime, even when they're in their mid-teens, so they can lose their fear of the place. So I've been impressed by the outreach. Of course, the, the private schools are furious because they're losing what they saw as their right to, you know, thousands of well over a thousand places, both Oxford and Cambridge every year. And so they're not happy about this, but I think this is, um, a necessary reform for the UK and it's happening very quickly. So I don't think an individual can do much to break into these establishment groups. It has to happen much earlier in life. But I think that the elite that's coming in 15 years and 30 years will look very different and will have far fewer of these kind of boarding school and Oxford enclave. It's interesting that you you say at the end of the book that someone like Boris Johnson just wouldn't get into Oxford now. Um, I, was quoting a, I was quoting an Oxford tutor who told me that. So, so even more powerful uh, that they that they came from that source. Uh, playing devil's advocate a little bit on that, I think it's very refreshing what you've said. But when we look at, we've talked about Michael Gove coming from, uh, I think, grammar school background, if I remember rightly, uh, uh, a private school, a private school, private school, where he yeah. had a scholarship, yeah, uh, and Liz Trust coming from a comprehensive school, still coming through the Oxford Union, um, even if Oxford widens its doors and lets people in are we still going to have this oxford union stranglehold on the levers of power and are people going to make that transition from their comprehensive background into an oxford union mindset and outlook as you could argue michael govan and and this trust have done rather than bringing those uh those different qualities to the table look i think it's terrible that the way the uk selects its ruling class whether you whether Oxford and Cambridge are more diverse or not, I think it's terrible that you say, look, did you get your acceptance letter from Oxford or Cambridge age 17, 18? Well, if so, here's your ticket to the establishment. And it's lifelong as long as you don't really, really tear it apart. Uh, you, you've been admitted as an establishment member. You don't even have to work particularly hard anymore or impress. And the 99% of the population, that's approximately statistically what it is, who doesn't get the admissions letter from Oxford or Cambridge age 18, we say to them, sorry, your chance of getting a ruling position in Britain is almost zero, whatever you do for the rest of your life. And so I would just radically change that. And I think 
establishment institutions like the media, like the judiciary, the civil service in general are becoming much more open to people who didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge for senior roles. And that's the way we need to keep pushing on the recruitment side. Don't just look at this one statistical fact on someone's CV, which often says much more about the parental home they came from, plus the luck of whether they got through the Oxford interview, entrance interview, etc. Let's uh, let people develop themselves over their whole careers. And if you at 40 turn out to be brilliant and bright and hardworking, well, we, we'll let you in. And I'd love to see Oxford and Cambridge uh, becoming Oxbridge for all, where, I mean, I advocate in the book dropping undergraduate teaching at those universities and instead just send them out among the whole population, all classes, all regions, and say, you know, you're 37, you didn't go to university first time round, but you're extremely bright and most basic. And there's a subject you really want to study at Oxford or Cambridge. Well, we'll take you, whether that's for a summer or three years, whatever you need, we will upskill you and give you a position and, and upskill you for a position of power in British society. I think British society would be much the better for that kind of openness to talent. What do you think the chances are of that happening? I think we're in a, an anti-elitist moment where the elite institutions feel under a lot of pressure to reform. I mean, that's why Oxford and Cambridge are suddenly letting in all these state school kids, not because not just out of the goodness of their hearts, although I know many teachers are motivated uh, to achieve much more social diversity and find talent in unexpected places. I think most Oxford teachers genuinely want that. But also, they're under huge pressure from people bashing the elite. And although I'm against Brexit, one of the aspects of Brexit was saying our elite is entitled, uh, they're out of touch with the rest of the population, uh, they've been separated from us since birth or since age 18. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, of course, Brexit was an anti-elitist cause led by an elite of Oxford Public School Boys, as I show in the book. But still, I think that has made a difference to elite institutions. And so has Me Too and Black Lives Matter, which are both movements that say you should not be entitled to power just because of who you were at birth. You know, whether you were born white or posh or male, that should not entitle you to positions of power. And I think that's a very uh, widely believed position in British society now. And on the other hand, we have an elite currently that is overwhelmingly white, male and posh. And so that has created a clash. And I think that's going to lead, that is going to encourage a strong move towards greater diversity. What, what do you think of uh, Liz Truss's proposal during the leadership election campaign that Oxford and Cambridge should have to interview everyone who achieves, I think, two A's and an A star or whatever it may have been at, at A level? I'm very skeptical of that. I mean, if you go to private school, and, you know, you have small classes and teachers who pay intense attention to you um, and the best facilities, you're probably more likely to get those two A's and A star than somebody who went to a very deprived state school in a deprived part of Britain who might be looking after a sick parent or a sick sibling, uh, living in a room with a sibling where it's very hard to study. If that deprived kid gets two A's and a B or an A and two B's or whatever, he, she is very likely brighter than the private school kid who gets slightly better marks. And Oxford is finding in admitting far more of these kids from deprived backgrounds that they do struggle socially. 
because they're in an environment that is scary to them and new often, but they get higher grades. So I'm what Oxford and Cambridge are doing is the opposite of what Liz Truss is arguing for. What they're now doing is uh, applying what they call contextual admissions, where you don't just look at the grades, which are often a marker of somebody's social class and home life. You look at what grades they've achieved and what success they've achieved relative to deprivation, which may be a much better marker of their potential. Talking about the the leadership campaign, uh, you, you talked earlier about uh, people have come through this Oxford Union pathway being very uh, geared towards winning elections, about it being in some cases, and I won't make any comment on the current uh, candidates or contenders, um, but some of them being there for power for themselves rather than for the greater good. Uh, and also this loyalty where this don't rock the boat um, mentality comes in. What are your views on so quite a vicious campaign, particularly over the early parts of it, where there were five, four or five candidates for the leadership, uh, but attacks, what's called blue-on-blue blue attacks all the way through. And what struck me as very interesting is that people who were attacked and were part of those attacks, people like Penny Mordaunt, for example, who was, I think, the, the, the penultimate person out uh, before the final two, um, suddenly fall into place behind the people that are attacking them as soon as they're out of the race. So uh, uh, how much of that comes from that that pathway? Um, and how do you think that reflects on our politics generally? I think one thing that the Oxford Union teaches people is that it's just a game. So, you know, if you and I are running for president, then I say terrible things about you. But you understand and I understand that it's just a game and we can be mates later. And so you see that with Johnson and Go, for example. They've said terrible things about each other. They've had great fallings out. Um, Gove has twice sabotaged or tried to sabotage Johnson's premiership. And yet they've had a working relationship of 35 years because they think it's just a game. And so I think within, among those Tory politicians, they don't take it as seriously as viewers take it when they say terrible things about each other. So if it's just a game, what impact does that have on our position in the world uh, and our ability to secure the best possible government for the country? I think if you're prime minister or a powerful minister and you think it's just a game and it's just about your power and whatever happens to the country, you'll be fine and people from your class will be fine because they've always been fine. They've been fine for centuries. I mean, this is possibly the oldest ruling caste in the world. You know, the, um, the, the British tough caste. And so they don't worry particularly about a cost of living crisis. I mean, sure, you know, some poor people might freeze or starve to death this winter. God forbid. They probably will. But if you're from that caste, well, that doesn't particularly affect you. What matters is, you know, do you get to be prime minister? Might there be a statue of you one day? And one thing I think that does is it allows them to pursue policies that will win them power, but that they themselves don't really believe will make the country better. I think that was true of Johnson and Brexit. I think that's true of Truss and her kind of extremely aggressive, uh, performative uh, Brexiteering when she made very coherent arguments for Remain in 2016. You don't really care whether the policy is good or bad for the country. You care about whether the policy helps you. 
And so I think there's a, a deep irresponsibility. And I think it's not just because of Oxford or because of that class. I think it's also because if you're middle class or upper class in Britain, like almost all politicians, then it's been a very comfortable 75 years, you know, and it's been a very comfortable 350 or so years. Uh, no famine, no revolution, no invasions in the last 350 years, uh, no civil war. Uh, there, there have been a couple of world wars, and the, the dead from them are remembered as heroic sacrifices, even something like the beautiful. But this is a country where things haven't gone badly wrong for the middle and upper class. And so I think that has bred a kind of complacency that you see very strongly in this Conservative Party race, where in the midst of a meltdown for the people lower down the income scale, you have these ridiculous conversations about woke and about tax cuts for well-off people. So, okay, let, let's, um, again, play devil's advocate a little bit. What would we lose if the establishment lost its grip? Because I'm sure there are those that would argue that that, that that wealth of experience that's passed down through the generation steadies the ship, and they would argue that uh, Britain's place in the world, the United Kingdom's place in the world, is far above its population and, and its ge- geographical size. So if if we did have that change, if we did have that very British style of revolution, what would we lose by not having that establishment pathway? Well, I mean, look, the establishment is not one unified whole. And, you know, as I've said, the establishment has let in many people of talent who came from outside it. And there were periods before about 2005 when state school people were much more at the front of the show. And so I think that, you know, it's ne- there has never been a perfect meritocracy and Britain has never been close to a perfect meritocracy. But if you're going to pretend to be a meritocracy, at least be something more of a meritocracy than we are, where uh, we have Eton and Oxford prime ministers who, like Johnson, would never have reached the top of the meritocracy. He's too lazy and he lies too much. Uh, somebody like that just wouldn't have got through. And indeed, he was sacked from jobs for lying in the shadow cabinet at the time. So either we have much more of a meritocracy where Oxford and Cambridge really make much more of an effort to genuinely select the most bright and talented people in the population than they do now. And then we funnel those people to the top over the next 35 years. I'm skeptical of that. Or we go a much more social democratic route, countries like Germany, Scandinavia, Australia, Canada, where it doesn't matter so much where you went to university and where uh, you prove yourself over your career. I don't think we would lose a lot from losing, uh, from weakening the tough caste's grip on power at all. I don't think experience is inherited from generations. And indeed, the argument I make in the book is that the tough generations who went through the two world wars were much more seasoned, had a much stronger sense of responsibility to the rest of the population and created a social democracy. The, the generation without tragedy, which I belong to, which is Rees Mogg and Johnson and Cameron and Go, people who had never experienced anything terrible, never lived in solidarity with the rest of the population and therefore quite blase about it. So from 1945 to 79, Britain is led almost all the time by men who've been veterans of one of the world wars and who feel, you know, we are one nation, the working class sacrificed, we have to look after them. It's very paternalistic. So Macmillan doesn't think the working class is just like me, but he does think I, I have a responsibility to them. So uh, I, I think that the tough caste is different in every era. And in our era, it's been remarkably irresponsible for historical reasons. 
I'll finish off in a moment with a reflection on whoever wins the, 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 the Conservative leadership and becomes our new Prime Minister. But before we do, for people who are in a leadership position or aspiring to a leadership position in an organisation where this establishment class has a strong footprint, I'm thinking perhaps professional services firms would be a very good example. You've mentioned the civil service as well. You, you said earlier that it really needs a societal change rather than an individual change. But what can an individual do um, to, to make the most of their career opportunities if they're not from that establishment background? Well, I'm quite influenced by a, a Dutch book by a Dutch friend of mine, uh, Joris Leijendijk, who's also published in English, uh, Swimming, Swimming with the Sharks, about, sorry, Swimming with Sharks about the city. And he writes a book about sort of the white man in power, and he writes it as a white man. And he says, look, I know what it's like to be an outsider because he went to England to work at The Guardian. The Guardian is exactly the kind of workplace you describe, which is dominated by Oxbridge-educated people, mostly white people. And you said, what I realized in the end was I had to learn a new language, the language of Oxbridge, Britain. And he said the few working-class people, British people at The Guardian, also had to learn that language. So I would, what I would say, if you find yourself in a law firm or an accountancy firm surrounded by Oxbridge people, be aware that you have to learn their language. So they just speak English differently and they mean different things. So, of course, famously, you know, in a meeting when you say, this is what I think we should do, and an Oxbridge person says, well, that's brave. What it means is that's completely insane. And if um, that person says, um, if you are leading a team and you say, I think we should do this, and an Oxbridge person says, well, you're the boss. That means I totally oppose what you do. It's what you want to do. It's insane. And I will make every effort to sabotage you. So the elusive and ironic language that Oxbridge encourages is, I think, unfamiliar to Brits from other social classes and to foreigners. And you have to set about learning what they mean and learning what their norms are. So I said that we would we would finish with a reflection on the current leadership campaign campaign that's just drawing to a close. We're going to have a new prime minister, and that new prime minister will have studied at Oxford. Um, what are you expecting to see? Uh, and uh, obviously, at this stage, we don't know who that will be. We can guess, but we don't know. Uh, what are you expecting to see, and what are you hoping to see from them? I've ignored the leadership campaign because it struck me that candidates just say things that they have no intention of carrying out, much like having learned from Johnson, that's a very successful way to get elected. You just make the most extravagant promises. In this case, the 200,000 people have very different priorities than the rest of the country. Then when you're in office, you just forget about all those promises because who cares? You know, you, um, you won't be punished for going back on your word. Look at Boris Johnson. He went back on his word. He said things he didn't mean for decades. He became prime minister. So ignore what they say. Look at what they do. The Prime Minister is going to take office in possibly the greatest period of peacetime crisis in post-war British history. I mean, the cost of living crisis with rising costs of fuel and um, food is astonishing. And this is a country which has steadily got poorer since 2007-8. So wages now are already lower than in 2008. Um, they're going to get even lower. 
So really, Britain is starting to look like Argentina, an undeveloping country, a country that goes backwards. And, you know, what I would like to see is uh, a big package to help people through the winter, to help the poorest part of the population through the winter. And that will necessitate tax cuts, uh, tax raises, that will necessitate tax raises for the wealthier, tax raises for corporation which, of course, is exactly what Sunak and Kosovo said they won't do. So I'm very skeptical that they will do the right thing, but that is what I would like to see. And we're not talking about a comfortable country. We're talking about a country where a lot of people are screaming with pain, and that should be the government's best priority. Uh, Simon, on that bright note, um, and I, I can't, I can't argue with it on uh, with you on it at all. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. A lot of food for thought there, uh, and I think it's really important to shine a light on something we are all aware of, but maybe we don't discuss enough. You know, I talk about the importance of professional relationships in your career and in your role, um, but there are right ways about it, and there are wrong ways about it. And I think that what we have at the top of the British society at the moment is not enough of the right way about it. So thank you very much for your your great insights. Thank you, Andy. So let's see what 2024 holds in terms of British politics this year. I don't think we are going to get a former Oxford Union member as Prime Minister, but time will tell. Uh, in the meantime, one thing we do know is we've got one more visit left to Connected Leadership Gold before we get back to our regular programming. And it's a special one. It's one of my best friends uh, and in, in the business and someone I admire so much, a globally best-selling author and an, a truly inspirational speaker. So come and join me next week to find out more on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.